you all should be turned over to the book of Philippians chapter 4. And let me just say that as we begin our study, the, the last three or four weeks of our study in the book of Philippians, in one sense, was just an amazing aside. If you read commentators or scholars, they'll say that really what, was, what really is chapter 4 of Philippians really should have been all piled into chapter 3, because as you notice in the grammar, Paul makes a bit of a switch. And we've seen this happen a couple times in the book of Galatians, whenever Paul gets excited about something and this happens to you as well, you get overcome with ideas and you kind of switch trains of thought. Look with me, turn over the page uh, to chapter 3 and verse 1, and we're going to jump back to chapter 4, so keep your hand on the page. Paul writes, finally, brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Notice, though, he says the exact same thing in chapter 4, verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And then a few verses later, he says, finally, brothers, what's going on there? So what happens is, as Paul was coming to end Philippians, probably in chapter 3, and then all of a sudden he remembered something so important that he went off on a rabbit trail, and then finally at the end or the middle of chapter 4, he remembers that he was ending the epistle, and he says it again, finally, my brothers, I'm back on track. Well, what does that mean for us? What that means is in chapter 3, everything from verse 2 to 21 is an amazing aside. It's an amazing insight into Paul as he's remembering, as it culminates with what we looked at last week when he says, imitate me. And we know in the rest of the New Testament, Paul has said that. But this is the first time and the only time where Paul actually explains who he is. What is the engine that drives? drives him. And so when he says, imitate me, really all of chapter 3 is Paul's way of saying, this is what it means to imitate me. And one noteworthy way that we can imitate Paul is how do we face life in turbulent times? If you read the New Testament, if you're a note taker, you want to write down Acts chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul recounts the turbulent, unstable, and dangerous life he often read. Often read? Often led. Paul talks about his uncertainty, the instability, the turbulence. He records countless beatings, attempted assassination upon his own life being stranded at sea, being stoned by rocks, afflictions, hardships, calamities, being imprisoned, riots, sleepless nights, hunger, danger from robbers, danger in the country, danger in the city, danger from Jews, danger from Gentiles, danger from false Christians, danger everywhere, all recorded in the New Testament for us. Yet through it all, through all this instability and uncertainty and turbulence, Paul the apostle was a rock. He never gives in to cynicism or bitterness or anger, but his pen flowed with grace and love and passion for God's people and the world. Through all of this, Paul was a rock, a strength of the church, and helped spread Christianity in his lifetime through the most of the Middle East, the Mediterranean, and parts of Asia. Now, you and I certainly don't live lives as turbulent as Paul. But we do face turbulent times, don't we? We do face times that are uncertain and times that seem unhinged. As a matter of fact, I cannot think of a time more than our present moment that everything seems up for grabs. It seems like the, the, everything's about to just fall apart. Things are unstable, uncertain, and almost unhinged. 
Now, if you're from an older generation, you may be thinking the same thing I thought as I thought about this. Like my father, in his generation, he lived through the Depression. He fought through the entirety of the Second World War and the Korean War. His generation saw turbulence and instability at global proportions. Yet, there were all kinds of mediating institutions that held the center strong whether it was synagogue or temple or church attendance, that was so much more part of the culture. Career paths and trajectory lo- loyalties between companies and employees were more certain. Families were more cohesive, and there was even a, a, a shared national sense of values and identities. But today, none of those things are a reality. So even though that generation faced turbulence and uncertainty of global proportions, there were all these mediating institutions that held the center strong, and none of those are true today. According to the Barner Research Group, the average evangelical Christian attends church two Sundays out of every five. The average individual changes jobs ten times during their lifetime. According to the Association of, uh, American Asso- uh, Psychological Association, the divorce rate in the U.S. is between 40 and 50 percent, and culturally, we have never been more fragmented than we are now. That's a lot of instability. That is a lot of uncertainty. That, that is a lot of turbulence. Now, more than ever, we need something that's going to hold the center strong, and we cannot look to external institutions. Whatever it is that's going to hold the center strong for us as a people or as you individually has to be internal. And so, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, Paul gives us an insight into what holds the center strong, and he's going to apply it in three different situations. So, you see in verse 1, Paul issues this command to the Philippians to stand firm in what they have been taught and the examples they receive, which he discussed all in chapter 3. And then in verses 2 through 7, he shows how this commitment to the supremacy of Christ and His gospel brings a rock-solid stability to our relationships in verses 2 and 3, to our circumstances in verse 4 and 5, and finally into our hearts in verses 6 and 7. So, our passage looks like this. What holds the center strong is a commitment to the supremacy of Christ and His gospel. And that leads necessarily to a stability in our relationships, it leads to a stability in our circumstances, and it leads to stability in our hearts. So let's look at them one at a time. Let's look at Paul's command to what, what holds the center strong, and it is the supremacy of Christ and His gospel message. You look at verse 1, Paul says, therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Now, two things become very clear as we look at verse 1. Number one, how much Paul really loved these Philippians. You see that? I mean, my joy, my crown, my beloved, he loves these people. And the second thing is Paul's command to stand firm. Now, if that sounds familiar, it should because this is the same command that Paul issued in chapter 1 when he talked about being worthy of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. But it's actually this little word here, if you're using the ESV, it's the word thus. If you're using a New American Standard Bible, they translate it, I think, better. It says, stand in this way. 
So, so Paul says, Philippians, you people who I love, you're my joy, you're my crown. Stand firm in this way. So the question we have to ask is, well, which way are you referring to Paul? Remember Paul, verse 17, we looked at last week. He said, imitate me. Imitate me. And then the warnings that he provided in verses 18 and 19, in light of the amazing assurance that we have of our citizenship in heaven and these eternal resurrected bodies in verse 21 and 20, stand this way. Stand like this. It is another way of commanding the Philippians to imitate Paul's life, not just what he was referred to in verse 17, but really everything in verse 2 from chapter 3 all the way through 21. His, his aside, his autobiographical insight into the way he thought. You see, when we read Paul, we can tend to think, okay, that's just Paul, super apostle, super Christian. But in Paul's mind, that's not the case. Paul is thinking of himself as merely the example of what a life transformed by the gospel should look like. Friends, are you feeling in your life that the center is not holding very strong? Do you feel maybe at the ends of your life, maybe you're a little frayed on the edges, maybe your life is held together by nothing more than duct tape and some paper clips? And that might work for your Bibles, but that won't work for your life. If you feel that maybe the center needs to be stronger, you don't feel like you're a rock. You don't even feel like a pebble. You feel like you're barely holding it together where Paul is giving us insight into how to be a rock like he was because he was a rock. He says, stand this way, the way I've been standing so we go back to, to chapter 3 and say, well, well, how do we stand? What's this way Paul's referring to? Remember verse 8, where Paul says, you can turn back and look at it, verse 8, where Paul says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ." Or what about when Paul said in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. What about what Paul was talking in verse 20, knowing that their citizenship is in heaven and they're awaiting a Savior that will transform them. Here's another way of saying it. What is the principle by which Paul lived that made him such a rock? It was that Paul would take big theological truths, the big truths of Scripture, and he would bring them to bear in the little places of everyday life. Let me say that again because we see that in Paul, the way Paul was a rock, the way Paul was encouraging the Philippians to be a rock, the way Paul is encouraging us to be a rock is you take the big truths of Scripture and you bring them to the little places of your life in every way. Now, last week we ended, I was talking about the particular importance that Paul placed on we, where we set our minds, because as we saw through Philippians, where we set our minds determines the way we will live our lives. So, all through the book, Paul kept saying, think this way, have the same mind. This mind is yours in Christ. He keeps repeating this idea that where we set our minds determines the way we live our lives. Turn with me to to Romans chapter 8. Keep your finger in Philippians, but go to the left a few pages to Romans chapter 8. 
This is the passage that we ended with last week, but it's so important we need to hear it again. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 and 6, Paul wrote this, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. So, if you're constantly setting your minds on earthly things, you're going to deal with earthly situations in the only way you know how, and that is from an earthly, worldly manner. If your mind is always about the little things of this world, then you'll only be able to understand your relationships, your circumstances, your own heart from the little perspective that this world gives you. Now, I want to be clear, don't confuse little with belittle, right? I'm not belittling any situation, any relationship, any circumstance, any situation. But in comparison to what Paul's been getting at and what we've been studying, in comparison to the amazing, eternal, unstoppable gospel message, that plan that God has, they are little. And Paul says, don't set your minds on the things of this world, set your minds on things above. You see, Paul and the Bible never deal with this life from the perspective of this life. That's really important. The Bible never deals with our relationships, our circumstances, or our own hearts from the perspective of this life, because this life is always changing. It's always in flux. It's always moving. The Bible always addresses our issues with a massive freight load of theological truth that is made to play out in the little places of our lives. And that's because the Bible is the only source that has the entire scope in view to make sense of the little things. In other words, the Bible understands the forest, and because it knows the forest, it can understand the trees. The point of view that the Bible uses is often uses this word, it's called the word spiritual. You might have picked that up in Romans chapter 8. When Paul's contrasting flesh and spirit, he's contrasting a completely different worldviews. And it's the spiritual perspective that takes into account all of life that Paul is talking about. And at its center, it is the work of Christ made known in the gospel. He says something like this in 2 Corinthians 4.18. He says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Why? Because the things that are seen are transient. They're temporal. They're, they pass by. But the things that are unseen are eternal. But you see, without that point of view, we are limited in making sense of things of this world. Without the point of view of the Spirit, without the point of view of eternity, without the point of view of what God is doing, we are so limited in making sense of this world because our perspective is so little. And as a result, we make mountains out of molehills, right? We love the things we shouldn't too much, and we love the things we should too little. We worry and fuss over things we can't control, and we ignore and slack off on the things we can because our perspective are the things of this world. What made Paul such a rock was that he knew Christ and his supremacy were the thing that matters most. 
He knew that his citizenship, like those of the Philippians, was secure and eternal and belonged to that eternal kingdom. And that eternal kingdom is going to change everything. And so he ended chapter 3 saying, write down to the actual bodies we inhabit that this perspective, this eternal reality changes everything. Everything's going to be different because of the gospel, not just in the future, but here as well. And that truth was an anchor in Paul's mind, and it was an anchor in the minds of, of the writer of Hebrews. So, this is what he says in Hebrews chapter 6, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So, Paul, all this one command, he's saying, stand this way, have your mind rooted on the eternal realities that should shape the way you understand your life. And based on that, he then moves into these three areas of application. So, the supremacy of Christ and His gospel that holds the center of your life will lead to stability first in your relationships. So, we see in verse 2 and 3, he says, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Sanctity to agree in the Lord. Now, we don't know the exact details of the difference between these two ladies in the church. But can you imagine Paul saying, in light of Christ's cosmic and eternal purposes and promises to us, do you see how whatever disagreement you two have seems pretty petty? In light of our eternal citizenship and the unstoppable kingdom, can you just get over that maybe she hurt your feelings or she said something to you you didn't like? When you think about these huge theological truths and you bring them to the little places like our disagreements, don't they seem a little mundane, a little petty? maybe even almost embarrassing if you got Eodia and Syncthetia to talk together and they realized, yeah, okay. So, so Eodia had a different idea of how to do women's ministry than me, and we, and we got argued, and it doesn't make a difference, right? Or Eodia wanted to hold on to the missions committee seat, and, and I wanted it, but that's okay. Or Eodia has a different way to raise her kids than I do, and I maybe, you know, doesn't it seem a bit petty in light of the command and mission that Christ has put you on to argue this way? Because you're living for things that are bigger than whatever it is you possibly could be disagreeing with. Friends, when we get off mission, we're going to get petty. Now, now, some of you saints are old enough to remember Chuck Smith and, and the, and the kind of the, the, the whole Jesus movement revival that happened in the 60s. And when Chuck took over this church in Costa Mesa, this little church, and all these hippies, and I know some of you were them because you told me, all these dirty, stink, well, these hippies, right, these flower child, coming in barefooted, ruining the carpet, staining the, the, the pews with their beatneck juice, and the, the board, this is for real, the board complained about it. And so Chuck came in on a Friday night and ripped out the carpet. When we get off mission, we get petty. Friends, when, when you find churches that are embroiled in infighting, they're arguing about the style of music or if we should have pews or stadium seating or what you should wear or don't wear, you found a church that's off mission. Friends, I am so grateful by God's grace. We don't have that going on here. I love the fact that we sit in a church and we sing a hymn and then we sing a contemporary song and the whole church sings 
It's just not the hymn people singing the hymn and the contemporary people singing the contemporary songs. I love that we have a church that our brother Ty looks sharp in a suit and he sports that and he's sitting together with brothers in Bermuda shorts and a tank top and they love one another in Christ. I love that we as a church by God's grace are sticking on mission. When I candidated here a few years ago, uh, some of you don't know this, but I had this earring. It was an orbital earring. You can still see the holes. And, and, and I remember candidating. It wasn't a big thing. It was just an earring. I had an earring in my life more than I didn't. And so I thought, well, this is me. I'm just going to candidate with my earring and didn't think much about it. And I love the fact that at every meeting, now I wasn't waiting for this question, but I was surprised no one person asked me about my earring. That was revealing to me. As a matter of fact, a couple years after, I had stopped wearing it because I lost it is what happened. <laughs> one, of the, one of the older saints in the church came up to me, and they said, Pastor Rick, did somebody tell you to get rid of your earring? And they seemed like they were going to get upset if somebody told me to remove my earring. I said, no, I just lost it. That's what it is. I haven't found one yet. I love the fact that at this church, it doesn't matter if you have piercings or you have tattoos or you wear a suit or a sundress. It's a matter of are you on mission for the supremacy of Christ and His gospel? We are supposed to be a people. Uh, Contrary to the church growth movement, we're supposed to be a picture of God's eschatological work. In other words, we're all different, every tribe, every nation, every tongue. We're not all supposed to look the same. We're going to be different because God's trying to reach a diverse world. And when you find churches that argue about the color of this carpet or the size of the screen or those other things, you're off mission and you become petty. And Paul is saying, in light of the fact that we are citizens of of this imperial majesty of Christ, can we get over the small differences? It's only when your mind is trapped and enamored on the big things that you don't sweat the details. Those of you involved in construction, you know how this goes. You can be working on a $5 million job, and if you got a $5,000 change order, you don't even sweat it. You just go with it. Now, if it's your own personal finances, that's a big deal. But not when you're balancing a budget of $5 million, because when your mind's set on the things that really are significant, you don't sweat the details. And Paul is saying in our relationships, we have to live for something so much bigger than ourselves. Now, Iodia and Syncety, notice they don't have to agree on everything, do they? No. And thank the Lord, they don't have to agree on their philosophy of ministry. They don't have to agree on their politics. They don't have to agree on if homeschool or public school is best for their kids. Paul just says, look, agree what? In the Lord. Don't you see what you have in common? Don't you see the big picture? Lift up your eyes. Lift up your thoughts. That's what Paul did in everything, and that's why Paul was a rock, and that's how you can be a rock too. Set your mind on the things that matter, the supremacy of Christ and His gospel message. When that's true, there is stability in your relationships because you're not sweating the little things. It doesn't bother you if they may have offended you or forgot about you. It's not about you to begin with. It's about what Christ is doing. But secondly, it also leads to stability in your circumstances. So you see in verse 4 and 5, Paul gets back to this command, rejoice in the Lord. Always, again, I'll say it, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to all. 
That command to rejoice in the Lord is another way of saying, make Christ the center. Let your reasonableness be known to all. And that, that word is wonderful. It speaks of balance. It speaks of considered thought and forbearingness. It, it speaks of forbearing and balance in the face of one injustice, or uh, it speaks of a benevolent king whose honor has been slighted, but they can tolerate that and they can absorb that offense. We might say it this way. We, you might have heard this expression, we like people who are comfortable in their own skin, right? You guys have heard that expression? People who are comfortable in their own skin, they're just a gem, aren't they? They're, they're not looking to impress. They're not looking to intimidate. They're strong enough to appear weak. They're smart enough to admit their ignorance. They're wise enough to receive critique, and they're confident enough to appear foolish, right? Nothing's more distasteful than insecurity, someone who always feels like they have to defend themselves or justify themselves or always trying to get on your good side, and nothing's more compelling than someone who's just comfortable being themselves. One of my favorite poems is written by Rudyard Kipling. Let me show you a couple of verses. It's called If. He writes this, if you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too, if you can wait and not be tired by waiting, or being lied about, don't deal in lies, or being hated, don't give way to hating, and yet don't look too good nor talk too wise, if you can dream and not make dreams your master, if you can think and not make thoughts your aim, if you can meet with triumph and disaster, and treat those two imposters just the same. If you can bear to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by knaves to make a trap for fools, or watch the things you gave your life to broken, and stoop and build them up with worn-out tools. Now, Kipling's poem, it's an amazing poem, and it's all about being a man. The very last line of the poem says, if you can do all this, then you'll know you're a man. His point to the whole poem is captured in this concept of reasonableness. There's that one particular line, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those imposters just the same. What Kipling is saying is that, look, you may experience wonderful things in your life and blessings, or you may experience difficulty and hardship and, 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 and misunderstandings that people have against you. They'll come against you. But if you don't let that destroy you because your identity is not in any one of those things, you can see them as imposters and you'll be all right. So, you might get a promotion at the office, and that's great, but if you think that somehow makes you better or more secure, you're in for a surprise because you could easily get fired. Or if you don't get the promotion, that's okay because maybe that wasn't the best thing for you. And Kipling is saying, triumph and disaster, these are imposters. If you hook your wagon to being one of these two, it'll ruin you. There's got to be something more to your life than the things of this world. But you see, in order to have this approach to life, you need something that transcends everything else. Now, to Kipling, the idea was to be this kind of, to be this man's man. But, but even that's limited because ideas of manhood and just being able to talk about masculinity, let's face it, in our culture, even that's up for grabs and there's a lot of confusion around it. So that, according to Kipling, couldn't be it. 
But Paul says, the Bible says, the supremacy of Christ and what He's about transcends everything. And if you attach yourself to that purpose and plan, you will be able to transcend everything else as well. So if people, to quote the poem, if people are losing their heads and blaming you, your identity is in Christ, not in being seen as right or competent. So you don't get defensive. You don't waste your energies trying to prove other people wrong. You can engage whatever that situation is with confidence and love, right? You can have your dreams, and you can pursue them, and you won't be crushed if they don't come out the way you want it to because at the end of the day, your ultimate joy is the supremacy of Christ and His gospel being fulfilled, not you making senior partner by 30 and retiring by 40. Or if that does come to true, it doesn't ruin you because you know that all these things come from God's hand anyway, and you're just stewarding His blessings. You see, you have something that transcends all these realities. Friends, the reality is, until you don't need this world, let me frame it in the positive. It's only until you don't need this world that you can actually engage this world. Let me say that again. It's only until you do not need this world that you can actually love this world. In other words, because without that ability, you will do one of two things. You will either idolize the things of this world or you will demonize the things of this world. You will either make too much of this world, which many Christians do. They live for this world, or they make nothing about this world. And some Christians do that. It's all, it's all evil. It's all horrible. I'm going to remove myself from it entirely. Until you have something that transcends this world, which the Bible says is the supremacy of Christ and the gospel message, you will not be able to relate to this world correctly. You'll do one of two things. You either idolize it or you're going to demonize it. You make too much of it or you make too little of it. But you see, when the gospel grips your center, you can confidently affirm the things of this world that are true and good and beautiful, and you can confidently confront the things of this world that are depraved, wrong, and sinful. And you don't care about whether or not the world likes you or not because you don't need the world. What you realize is you need the supremacy of Christ. C.S. Lewis said it best, aim for heaven and you get earth thrown in, aim for earth and you get neither. And so having the supremacy of Christ gripping you and holding your center together brings stability to your circumstances. And this was true of Paul. So whether revival broke out because he was preaching the gospel, it didn't puff him up. Just like if riots broke out because he preached the gospel, it didn't ruin him because he wasn't about whether or not there was revival or riot. He was about Christ being exalted, and he knew Christ's purposes could not be thwarted no matter what the circumstances. Keep in mind, when he writes this letter, he's in prison, and he's a church planner, and we talked about this. He could no longer plant churches, but it didn't ruin him. Even though his circumstances would change, he wouldn't because he was a rock, because his center was the supremacy of Christ. Finally, the supremacy of Christ doesn't just lead to stability in our relationships because we all live for things that really matter, and we don't sweat the little things. Supremacy of Christ leads to stability in our circumstances because we're living for something that transcends every circumstance, good, bad, or otherwise. And the supremacy of Christ leads to stability in our own hearts. 
Look at verse 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And then there's this beautiful promise of the peace of God that guards us. Now, the first thing we need to say about this is probably the most important thing, and that's this. Most people are reading this verse incorrectly. And that's because they leave out the phrase that comes right before verse 6. See, this is where verse numbers don't help us out. What comes right before this very famous verse? The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing. Right? You see, what Paul is saying is that the relationship is just as important as the command itself to remember that. And this is probably one of the most well-known and frustrating verses of the book of Philippians because people tend to use it as a super verse, right? So if you say you're anxious, what do people usually do? Well, brother, sister, Philippians 4, 6, be anxious for nothing, as if that in and of itself is supposed to stop you from being anxious. But you see, that's not how this works. Paul said that in the surrounding context that the supremacy of Christ and His purposes are the thing that's holding your center together. Without that being the center of your life, hearing this verse about praying about your anxieties could actually be worse because you end up just praying your own anxieties. So what we need to do is hear this verse in a way that I think is in the context of everything Paul talks about. I'm going to back into this thing. So let's do this real quick, and I'm, I'm going to have you, we're going to have some verses on the screen, but let's, let's put our theology together on, on this thing about building stability in our hearts. Paul commands, be anxious for nothing, but in everything let these requests be made known to God. Now, is that because God doesn't understand them? Does that, does that mean that God doesn't know what our needs are? That's clearly not the case, and I think Paul has in mind Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, verse 23. So, we have this here. So, this is what Jesus is saying. Therefore, do not be anxious. It's the same Greek word. Saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And here's that verse. And here's the thing. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Paul is saying the same thing Jesus is saying. Now, Jesus says it differently. He's saying, seek the kingdom of God. He's not saying, seek the supremacy of Christ, but it's the same idea. Jesus says, look, your heavenly Father knows you have need of all these things that they're worried about, food, provision, safety. Jesus says, your Father knows you need them all. But seek the kingdom first because your Father also knows your heart is prone to go after those things. Jesus is saying the same thing that Paul is saying. Make Christ the center of your life. He's the one that holds the center strong. And why? This is where we go to 1 Peter chapter 5, where Peter says, cast all your anxieties, same Greek word from Matthew and Philippians, cast all these anxieties on Him. Why? Because he cares for you. So Jesus says, look, your Father knows all your needs, and He also knows that that's going to consume you. So seek Him first above all things. And Peter says the same thing, cast your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. And James reinforces this. James tells us that, look, if any of you lacks wisdom… Now, you're, I, what I want you to understand, theology, 
Certain words may change, but the concepts behind them are the same. James, if you remember our study, says, if any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you lacks the perception or the perspective to see life the way God sees it, let him ask God who gives it generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. And then later it skips in verse 17, reminding us that every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there's no variation or shadow due to change. So what we're hearing is God saying, look, seek me because I know you have needs and I know the tendency to seek after these other things. So stick to me. Make the supremacy of Christ the center of your life to hold it all together. Seek the kingdom of God first because the Father cares for you. And when you seek him, he longs to give you these good gifts. So you don't need to be afraid. But what about the reality is, what if we don't get what we want? We ask God for the protection of our children. What if that doesn't work out? We ask God for His mercy in this situation. What if we don't get it? Well, the Bible will say we can trust Him, but it also may say that trials and suffering have a place in what God is doing to transform us. So Romans chapter 5, verses 3 and 4 tell us, more than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. James reinforces this in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness having its full effect that you may be complete or perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So even if the thing you fear comes to pass, it is not because it somehow got behind God or got under the radar. He's actually using this very thing to make you better than you are. But the reality is we get bummed. We don't want this. And the reality is, and I don't have these verses, but you can write these down. Romans 8, 5, we looked at it today. Colossians 3, 2 is because often our minds are not on the things of the Spirit, on the things above. They're here. And we think this whole world and the way we experience this world is the thing that matters, and we've gotten off track. We've gotten off mission. You say, well, what about, what about Romans 8, 28? That's a verse we all love, right? After all, it says that, um, yeah, thank you. <laughs> and we all know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called to His purpose. So isn't everything supposed to work out the way I want them to? Oftentimes that we use this verse, and we disconnect it from the very next verse, Romans 29. For those whom he, whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Friends, the good that God's working everything out to is not that you don't experience trials and suffering. It actually may be good for you to experience trials and suffering because the good that Romans 8.28 is referring to is that you be conformed to the image of his imperial majesty, Jesus Christ and nothing will happen in your life that can thwart that. So he says, do not be anxious for anything. The Lord is near. Whether it works out the way you want or not, God is working something in you. Now, friends, this doesn't mean that everything in the Christian life, that it turns out the way we want, that we just go through saying, okay, no matter what it is, trials or blessings, I'm fine. That's not it. You know what the most frequent command in the Bible is? The most frequent command issued more than 300 times, don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. It's not because God forgets that that's what He wrote. 
It's because we live in a very frightening world. We live in a fallen, broken world. Friends, I'll say it this way. If you are not afraid, you are not paying attention to what's going on in the world. If you stay afraid, you are not paying attention to what God says in His Word. That's just the reality. You cannot look in this world and not be afraid, but you cannot look in God's Word and stay afraid. Let me close this with this. You can go to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4, this wonderful illustration of this very dynamic. Mark chapter 4, verse 35 to 41. On that day, when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let's go across to the other side. Jesus was in his teaching ministry, and crowds were coming, and Jesus wanted to go to the other side of the Lake of Galilee. And leaving the crowd, they took with him in the boat, they took Jesus with them in the boat, just as he was, and other boats were with them. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But Jesus was there in the stern asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to them, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Now, keep in mind, this is not like me and you would freak out over waves. These are seasoned Galilean fishermen who understood, who'd been out on stormy waves. So, the fact that they are freaking out right now tells you, it's kind of like when you're on a plane and you watch the flight stewardess, right? When they panic, that's when you panic, right? The fact that they're panicking tells us this was a bad storm. And they wake him up, says, don't you care, notice the accusation, that we're perishing, notice the concerns about us. And Jesus awoke, and he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. Verse 40, and then he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Verse 41, and they were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Get this. First, they were filled with fear because of the world around them. And then when they saw what Jesus did, they were filled with greater fear because of the one that was with them. And they said, who is this? And notice how Jesus linked their fear to their lack of knowing Him, right? He says, well, you have no faith. You don't know who I am. Notice Jesus linked their fear of what was happening around to the fact that they did not know who was in the boat with them. Because this could have gone totally different. This could have been a raging sea and Jesus asleep on the stern and they could have just tapped him and said, hey, Jesus, you know, if, if, would you mind just rebuking the sea because I'm like certain about to throw up here and I'd really like your help, right? Now, one of two things would have happened. Jesus just would have maybe not even opened his eyes and went, and everything would have been fine. Or Jesus would have said, no, this storm is necessary because it's churning up the waters and there needs to be fish to feed the village and it kind of sucks to be you right now, but just ride it through, don't worry. But what did they do? They accused him. Don't you care about us? We're perishing. Jesus could have easily done it. And they knew that. But Jesus linked their fear because they just did not know who he was. We can know him. We can know him way more than the disciples could because we have the complete understanding of Scripture. 
if we're willing to make Christ and His supremacy the center of our life. It can lead to a stability in your own heart. I just have to close by asking, what is holding the center strong in your life this morning? Colossians 1.17 says that in Christ, Christ is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And that includes our lives, friends. To the degree we take our eyes off of the supremacy of Christ and what He's about and the mission you've been called to if you're a Christian, to that degree you will experience the uncertainty, the instability, the anxieties of this world. But according to Philippians 7, when you make, and really Philippians 3, Christ, when He's holding the center strong, it will bring stability. It doesn't mean you won't endure difficulty. It doesn't mean there won't be trials. But there will be a stability, a rock-like characteristic that even Paul had. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for what these seven verses communicate to us. Lord, and we, it starts with us getting the, the principle right of taking the truth of Scripture, these amazing, huge truths, into the little places that we live every day. Father, I thank you for your wisdom of the local church where we can see how this dynamic is played out in the examples around us. Thank you, Lord, that we are in a church where there are people living these big truths in the little places of their lives. Father, we pray that we would continue to be that so that we might be a rock, not for our own personal gain, but so that others may come to see what can bring stability in uncertain, turbulent times. And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.